Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I am your schizoid host, Cooper Cherry, host of the world's most schizoid podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Jay Banner. Dr. Banner is the F.M. Ballard Professor in the Department of Geological Sciences in the Jackson School of Geosciences. He is also Director of the Environmental Science Institute here at the University of Texas. Dr. Banner, it's a pleasure to have you with me on the show this afternoon. Great to be here, Cooper. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. What I'd like to have you start out by is maybe, I know we had discussed going into a little bit about, <clears throat> excuse me, the impact of urbanization on streams and maybe a little bit about planning a sustainable future for the state of Texas. Okay, sure. Um, so we'll start with the first and then we'll go to the second. That's a good order. So yeah, the impacts of urbanization on streams is uh, an issue of both the quality of the stream water and the quantity of the stream water. So as an area gets urbanized, what happens is we build roads, we build parking lots, houses, sidewalks, roofs, everything you can imagine, Frank Irwin Center. These things are all what we would categorize as impervious cover, right? So it's impervious, the water doesn't sink into it. Instead, the water hits it, collects and runs off. And when it runs off, it goes right to the stream in a way we might call sort of unmitigated. Uh, in contrast, to the natural landscape, which has vegetation, it's got trees, it's got soil, it's got grasses. All of these things are able to absorb water, retain it so that the amount of water flowing is not as much, right? And also more importantly almost, is that all those things, the vegetation and the soil sort of serve as a natural filter. So the natural landscape has sort of a built-in filtration capacity to it. And that helps clean the water up and it helps keep too much water from getting into the creeks too quickly. So in areas where we switch from a natural environment to an urbanized environment, often we seem that see the result is in both quantity and quality. So the quantity effect, the amount of water, is that the flooding gets flashier. In other words, the water runs off so quickly in an urbanized versus a natural landscape that the flood peak is higher, it gets there quicker, and falls off quicker. So that is more of a hazard than you can imagine than if the if sort of the peak rises slowly and doesn't get as high and then falls off. This peak I'm describing about, as you think about it, it's sort of the amount of water as a function of time. If you think of a graph that way, time's on the x-axis, right? You got this rise and fall. And in these urbanized watersheds, man, it just jumps up and it's on you really quickly. So a flash flood is more dangerous because it gets on you quick. And when was it? Was it Memorial Day? last year was it memorial day 2016 2017 lose track there's been floods <laughs> there's enough floods in this area um and where they they were basically reporting from the banks of shoal creek and you could actually see the water rising and they had to do a swift water rescue it was live on tv it was quite dramatic someone clinging to a utility pole the uh, austin rescue had to back up their uh, their inflatable bo motorized boat and use 15th, 15th Street as a as a boat ramp. They backed it onto the floodwaters and uh, scooted out there and, and rescued that person. Quite dramatic on live TV. And, you know, we're in the Shoal Creek watershed, which is a watershed like Waller Creek here in, in the downtown area that is very highly urbanized, right? Um, this is also made even more of an issue in that the natural terrain we have in this area is limestone which gets dissolved easily and erodes and weathers easily. And so you, a limestone terrain is often called a karst terrain. 
karst being a terrain, an adjective for a terrain that's characterized by a lot of solution features. So caves, caverns, sinkholes, big pipes or conduits, these also deliver water very quickly uh, through a landscape. So if you urbanize a karst landscape, all these issues are sort of made worse than if you had either a karst landscape or an urbanized landscape. So that was just quantity we talked about, and now with quality, this filtration is not just to sort of slow the water down, but it also can actually absorb toxins out of the water. So when we urbanize, we bring in new contaminants, right? We have uh, traffic, industry, etc. It's introducing contaminants to the environment and to the surfaces. When it rains, those surfaces, those contaminants are on those surfaces, and the new water from the rainfall mobilizes all of that, and it starts heading quickly to the stream. And if, again, you don't have the soil to absorb the, uh, and act as a, sort of a natural filter, you're going to have lower water quality in your stream. And in fact, that's what we see out here in uh, right next to our campus. We have Waller Creek, Shoal Creek, the next creek over as we go to the west from here from campus, the next watershed over. And those are two of the most highly urbanized uh, watersheds in the uh, Austin area. And they're two of the most uh, poor water quality watersheds in the Austin area is a pretty strong correlation. And this is not unique to Austin. Uh, most major cities in the world um, are, I would use the term, afflicted by this, right? Because you could take a, you're taking away a water resource, right? Whether it's used water for drinking, and not every stream produces water that's good enough for drinking, but you have to, there's less contaminants in it, you have to treat it less. So if the treatment requires less work, then there's less energy being expended, there's a lower carbon footprint for the process. And even if the water is not quite up to snuff to drink, at least it's high enough quality that you could at least go in it and recreate in it. Right. Or a term I like to use is frolic <laughs> in the water. And uh, it's kind of a interesting to think about in a way that this is characteristic of every major urban environment, yet most citizens in these environments are are not feeling like they've necessarily um, being denied something because it's been this way for so long, right? Once cities get built out that people don't know that it was ever any different. For example, Waller Creek, we know at one time had to be natural, right? Before people were here, it had to be of high water quality. And at some point in building this whole area, the downtown spreading outward, at some point, Waller Creek was sufficiently of high, high enough impervious cover and the, that the water quality began to degrade. Yet if people never knew, knew it to be any different, people around today never knew this time when it was high quality in the past, they don't feel like they're being denied a frolic, right? If you don't feel like you're being denied, you do, probably don't get too upset about it or question it or see if there's anything to be done to maybe restore things to their, to their, uh, a better condition. I won't say the original condition because that's probably not possible, right. but restore it back towards a condition that's uh, of higher quality and more livable. And it's not just a matter of can you drink the water or not, but you know, all the sort of quality of life issues that go along with that, whether it's a nice place to stroll along, whether, you know, usually when the water quality goes down, then biodiversity goes down. So there's not as many critters that can thrive in a highly urbanized watershed. Uh, this stream is doesn't have as many uh, diverse array of invertebrates living on the bottom or on or in the water column. The spe number of species of fish are greatly reduced. Uh, the vegetation along the banks, um, again, if it's all impaired, the diversity goes down, 
and that becomes less of a comfortable, nice, attractive, aesthetically pleasing place that you just want to participate in. And that gets right to quality of life, whether, you know, water is important. If we don't have enough water to drink, you know, that's, uh, you can only go a few days without water, right? You go a long time without a, a aesthetic beauty. But <laughs> we always have to ask at some point, you could, you could go long enough without these things, but is that, is that the kind of life we want to have? Certainly. I was immediately thinking about the hurricane situation situation in Houston recently with the flooding and how, you know, especially I think, you know, Austin at least tries to conserve some level of of green space. But I think, it, you know, Houston is obviously far more urbanized and, you know, the lack of any kind of vegetation to mitigate the floodwaters really exacerbated the situation there. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on in Houston. It's uh, it's much bigger than Austin is, is uh, I think less less planning went into that city, but uh, Austin by no means has got it all figured out. So these are, these are problems common to everywhere. If we had received 50 inches of water, like, you know, like Houston did, parts of Houston did, uh, we would have been probably in as much trouble as they were, right? Because like I said, that Memorial Day flood, which was not close to any kind of record rainfall, um, caused all kinds of problems here. So yeah, we're not immune to it. We may be doing everything, it seems like we're doing everything we can to become like Houston. Um, <laughs> that's not something we want right. to, not something we want to aspire to, but when, when a storm produces, I think the number was between 10 and 20 trillion gallon, gallons of water that fell from Hurricane Harvey on Houston. That's just an unconscionably large amount of water. Just amazing. Whenever that much falls, um, any terrain is going to be challenged to process that water. But then again, when you replace all the vegetation, like you said, in the soil and the wetlands, uh, things made, naturally made that serve as buffers to uh, <clears throat> the places we live in. If you, if you basically say, well, instead of uh, having those as buffers, let's just, there's more room to build. So let's build and you replace those buffers, natural buffers with impervious cover. Yeah, that's a recipe for big trouble. So, Tell us a little bit about your specific areas of research. I think, am I, am I right to say that you're so, sort of focused sort of in the central Texas sort of Edwards Aquifer studies and things yeah. like that in the local landscape? Uh-huh. Yeah, the local area is a big area of focus for my research group, but we also um, look globally. We have uh, active research programs in places like Guam in the Western Pacific Ocean, um, places like uh, Barbados in the Caribbean, done research in, as well in the Bahamas. So um, pretty pretty far ranging, but Texas affords us some real advantages of having um, watersheds and aquifers and cavern systems really in our own backyard. Um, it provides a number of advantages. And the, the sites that we study are that close. We can go out and very periodically sample and set up monitoring systems and sensor devices to monitor the environment. And so if they're just a 30 to 60 minutes drive from the campus, we can go out and uh, check on how those monitoring systems are going and uh, collect samples on a, on a monthly basis, which we do in a lot of caves and streams in the region. Uh, there's some real advantages to that. Somehow 
the National Science Foundation won't fund me to go to Barbados every, <laughs> every other week, as much fun as that would be. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, uh, that, would get, that would get tiring <laughs> after a while. But in, so in favorable cases, we work, for example, with, uh, with scientists at the University of Guam and uh, basically uh, teach them our methodology and then they can, we, we deploy it there with them and then they could carry on the monitoring. So um, yeah, we're not, we're, not, uh, we're not bound to Texas, but um, the advantage is, as I said, we can, we can study it with much more frequency and also, Texas has a series of very special challenges, and I think it's important that we're able to bet, try to undertake research that will provide a better understanding of these challenges. <clears throat> and that, what's relevant and pertinent to that is a new initiative at the University of Texas called Planet Texas 2050. And what this is, is the university would like to uh, fund and get going a number of interdisciplinary research projects. A lot of projects require people from many different disciplines to have at it and uh, to cross pollinate their various fields of expertise. So these are engineers, geoscientists, biologists, communication specialists, historians, architects, planners. If we're really gonna understand the challenges, <clears throat> excuse me, that Texas faces this century, we need to do it in a very interdisciplinary way. And so what this project, Planet Texas 2050, is all about is that there's two main drivers of stresses to come this century for Texas. One is climate change, right? The frequency of these intense storms that we've just been talking about, uh, uh, climate science says that those will increase in intensity. The uh, frequency, intensity, and duration of droughts, the other end of the spectrum from the intense storms, are also projected to increase in a warmer world that um, we're headed towards. So rather than the several year drought that we've seen uh, in the 20th century that the state uses as its uh, drought, of, uh, drought of record, as it's called, its worst case scenario for planning, the projections going forward in this century are that there will be these mega droughts, droughts that are longer than 10 years. So imagine a 10, 20, or even 30 year drought or really drought becoming the new mean state of the climate. Some model projections, that's what the forecast is. And so climate change is going to be something Texas has to deal with. In addition, the, dem the demographic research suggests that the population of Texas will double sometime between about 2050 and 2070. So think about that. Twice as many people, perhaps much less water, available through as a result of these extended droughts. Where will all these new people in Texas? Twice as many new people. Where will all these new people get water to drink? Uh, how are we going to ensure that as our cities grow, well, what's going to happen? Where will they all live, right? Uh, what will happen to the, uh, to the impervious cover in major cities now? The, the, the demographers forecast that most of the pop new population will be added in cities. That's been a trend going on for a while now. Um, if they're all going to live in cities, the cities, can they just grow up straight upward like the Tower of Babel? Or are they going to spread outward and encroach again on the natural landscape? Is that going to produce more? Will that turn, again, will that turn Austin into Houston, right? Just be have twice as many people. Take Austin, double the size of it, and you're pretty close to Houston. How are we going to ensure high water quality? sufficient water quantity and beyond water 
you know, there's all other sectors that are going to be affected by these twin drivers of climate change and population growth. Energy, right? There's this interconnection between energy and water we call the energy water nexus. In order to make water and filter it, right, to make water clean requires energy. We have to pump it to our homes. That requires energy. Almost any form of energy you look at, in order to create that energy, you need really significant amounts of water for cooling, for example, for a coal-fired power plant, what have you. So you can't push on one part of that system without pushing on the other. So understanding the nature of those connections and how those interconnections or feedbacks between those sectors, energy and water, for example, how those feedbacks between them change as we change climate, as we double population, increase the demand for water, increase the demand for energy, lower the availability for water, how all those feedbacks between energy and water systems change. Add to that, you know, urbanization, add to that public health, food security, ecosystem biodiversity. These are all sectors of our life that are going to be impacted by these twin drivers. <clears throat> the goal of this research project is to understand the nature of those connections because they're quite complex, quite interdisciplinary, and come up with a way for, for researchers who are very interdisciplinary to actually be able to share databases. Social scientists collect a different kind of data than geoscientists, than, than biologists, for example. How can all the different data from those studies be shared on a common platform? And how can we create a model that simulates going forward what Texas will look like? So it's one thing we, there are some sophisticated models now for um, forecasting how global climate will change. What will that mean locally for Texas? How can we take the results of those models into a model that maybe tells us how um, water flows around within a city as it urbanizes? How does the flow of water change? Can we model where, as a consequence of all this, there will be areas that are food insecure? Can we model where there will be areas that, where there will be hotspots in terms of uh, public health problems? What kind of public health problems? Well, in a warmer climate, there's a spread of uh, pests, vectors for diseases, you know, Zika virus, et cetera, things that originate in tropical regions. Uh, are they now going to be spreading to Texas? If we change where the water is, uh, a lot of these vectors depend on sort of stagnant water. How, can we model how that will change? If cities change as people move in and out of cities with different socioeconomic status, different access to health. How does all of this sum up as people of different socioeconomic status and maybe different ethnic backgrounds are more susceptible to some diseases, for example, like diabetes, as we become a more sedentary society, perhaps? It's one projection, right? As it becomes more, more warmer outside, more humid, higher heat index, do we spend more time indoors? Do we become more sedentary? Does that lead to more overweight people in our population? Does that lead to more diabetes? That's another public health outcome of all these things, all of these, starting with these dual drivers of climate change and population. So is there a way to actually map out where human health hotspots may be? All of this collectively, all these challenges are to what we call the resilience of Texas, right? The ability to um, sort of take a hit and uh, bounce back from it and come back. Can we understand it well enough so that we could under ultimately the result of all this research would help us help people 
formulate solutions and policies that may help us move forward in a much more sustainable way than we're currently tracking. Right. Uh, it's definitely scary in thinking, you know, I think the second largest economic driver in Texas is agribusiness. And with that, you know, large scale agriculture, also very, you know, high demands for energy and water. Um, also, the amount of, I guess that'll probably intensify too as we begin to, you know, the fracking and so forth as we begin, to, you know, to try to extract more difficult to reach oil and so forth. Um, I know that, so in my hometown is Flatonia, Texas, which is about an hour and a half to the southeast. Uh, quite a lot of fracking going on in that area. Uh, it's slowed down quite a bit since the price of oil has has really, you know, taken a nosedive. But uh, let's see, what is it? The I forget the shale, the... Uh, Eagle Ford. Eagle Ford, correct. Uh -huh. um, so it's actually really interesting. A, a few weeks ago, there was an earthquake, I think. You know, n nothing of maybe, I don't know, one or two on, on the, the Richter, Richter scale, scale, something uh -huh. like that. Pretty low. No right. one felt anything, but I just thought that was an interesting impact, you know, because I think my, my, you know, my parents still live in the area and they're kind of very skeptical about climate change and any kind of um, environmental impact of this type of activity. So I found that pretty, I don't know pretty scary uh yeah. but also you know not only that but the way that they pollutes the groundwater as well with the chemicals that they're pumping in to release the it's more difficult to reach petroleum so that's right uh-huh yeah there is uh in addition to climate change there's a number of other side effects of how we develop our energy and all of these things absolutely uh need to be addressed as we move forward i mean one one thing that's to be said about the boom in fracking is natural gas actually is less of a carbon intensive way to get energy from fossil fuels, right, than from oil or than from coal. It's less carbon intensive. And so, right, for, per unit of energy produced, uh, you put less CO2 into the atmosphere. So on the one hand, that's a good thing. On the other hand, if it makes us furthers our continuation and total dependency, near total dependency on fossil fuels, right? We're still producing emissions. And there are some other side effects in that natural gas is a lot of it's methane, and right, that's a also a greenhouse gas, which is actually more powerful molecule for molecule than carbon dioxide is. So it's a remarkably complex uh, challenge. How are we going to get energy in new ways that are not going to have such an impact on our environment? Because uh, there are things um, like I've just talked about that are, you know, relatively as yet unknown. How will what will our energy future look like? But there are other things that are that are not so unknown, right? That um, what climate science tells us and predicts in terms of a warmer atmosphere, producing in some areas more droughts, and a warmer atmosphere in some areas, producing higher sea surface temperatures and more intense storms. I mean, those, these are things that are just a matter of physics. Um, the fact that there is a greenhouse effect, that when you put these particular gases, CO2 and methane, into a volume of air and measure how much um, infrared radiation they absorb 
which is the radiation coming off the ground as the energy from the sun gets absorbed and converted. You could do that experiment in a laboratory. You could do it out in the field. And these gases will absorb and, and re-radiate that infrared radiation and make that volume of air warmer than it would be otherwise. Right? This is something that's been known uh, since the 1800s. Simple benchtop experiments by chemists a long time ago and up to today. Very reproducible result that there are greenhouse gases. That's incontrovertible that there is a greenhouse effect. Also incontrovertible is that the levels of these greenhouse gases in our atmosphere have been rising over the last several decades. Um, it's interesting that if you consider that some people might call it a debate, I don't, a debate about whether climate change is real or not. Um, you don't hear anyone on either side of the debate saying that the data that shows CO2 rising in the atmosphere are wrong. No one claims that. No one's ever come out and said, the greenhouse effect does not exist. So you put those two things together and it's like, well, what can we expect from our future? It seems pretty straightforward. Uh, it's, I think, a lot, of the, a lot of the skepticism about climate change I find to be a skepticism of some convenience. Most of us wouldn't pick up a bottle of trichloroethylene or benzene or something that's really known toxic toxic and drink it. None of us would go out to Waller Creek and dip our uh, coffee mug in, in the creek and uh, sip that all day. Uh, probably most of us, if we were diagnosed with cancer, would go to a, an oncologist who's a specialist and figure out the best course of treatment. All of those things that we are really clear about what we do are the result of the scientific method discovering what's good for us, what's bad for us. And so when it comes to our own personal choices of, our, of whether we're going to be healthy and alive or not, uh, we to readily buy into the scientific method. Now, it's the same exact method, scientific method, that produces all these projections and understanding of the climate system. So climate, one field is climate science. The other is medical science. They're both the fields of science. They both use the scientific method, the same, the same method the same approaches, yet why, is, why can one be so readily dismissed and the other one embraced because it's going to save our life? And the other one, we just can we just choose to say, I choose that part of science, I choose to say, uh, that's not right. Uh, I don't think, I think you, you know, one could take the position with, regarding science and the scientific method, you're either all in or you're not, you either buy it and basically scientists Scientists can be wrong, and they are, and that's the nature of science, right? We find out we're wrong, great. We move on, and we actually try to find then what's the right answer. We're constantly challenging and checking things that are done before within the realm of the scientific method, but we're not wholesale saying without any peer-reviewed backup or proof saying, I choose not to believe that because I saw something on a website that, <laughs> that fits Fits with what fits my I narrative, wanted. right? Thank you. Fits my narrative. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely, I'm interested in your actual research, so which delves into measuring. I get is it? I f confuse these all the time, but stalagmites. Did I say? Did I use? Did I use the right one? You said it right. All right. <laughs> yeah. I often forget. So you know what I have to do is I just have to go through it. So stalagmites might make it to the ceiling of the cave someday. Stalactites, so okay. I'm reaching up here, are hanging tight to the ceiling. <laughs> That's how I remember it, right? So one of the, uh, 
One of the real challenges in climate science is to try to understand the longer term record of Earth's climate and how it's changed. We basically have what we call the instrumental record, right? Uh, instruments like thermometers and rain gauges, and those records go back right to about 1900. We get back into the late 1800s, lots of parts of the world. Uh, the instruments weren't that good, or the record keeping weren't that wasn't that good. If the instrument was good, people weren't keeping records. You, know, you go far enough back in time, and turns out a long time ago people didn't care. Uh, or didn't think to write right. down how much yeah, rain exactly. fell today or how warm it was today. But mostly it's because the instruments weren't that good before then. So we need something to go further back in time. We need to go further back in time because for several reasons, we need to know what the sort of natural baseline of climate variability is. If we're going to understand the human component of climate change, we need to go back to a period of time when we know humans were not impacting the climate. Also, there were times in the past that maybe were analogous to what we're facing in the future, times of perhaps abrupt warming, uh, times of uh, intense storminess, times of extended drought. Uh, what, again, what was the natural component to that? Only if we know that can we best uh, look forward and try to understand what the new variability will be once we add the human component to the, to the climate system and try to model that going forward. So the ways you can try to get at uh, reconstructing past climate are by looking at these records or what we call proxies, just like a proxy vote. If you're not around to vote, you kind of mail it in. Well, back when before humans were recording things or back even before humans were here on the planet, um, are there any proxies or stand-ins? And so you could look at deep ocean sediments. You could look at ice cores. Many people are probably familiar with um, how the ice cores work. You count backwards layer by layer down from the surface back through time and you've got little pockets of, of air trapped in the ice and from that you can you know, analyze those little pockets for the composition of air like how much CO2 was in the air and that's a proxy for what past atmospheric CO2 had. And that's really the big way we know that back before the Industrial Revolution that CO2 was much lower for a really long time. Now, there are times in the past when CO2 was even higher. And so we have different proxies because not everywhere in the world is there ice. Like, for example, in Texas, um, no ice in Texas. So we need to find different proxies. Tree rings are probably something people are very familiar with. And they could tell us by the width of the ring how wet the environment was. We study the right species of trees. And those are extremely valuable. They go back in Texas, we find a tree that's 500 years old, we get pretty darn excited about it <laughs> because uh, that's a pretty old tree for, for uh, this part of the world and for most parts of the world. Um, but we really need to go even further back in time. The longer record we could look at, the longer we can hindcast, more accurately we could forecast going forward. So in Texas, we don't have ice, we don't really have coral reefs to speak of, except ones that are really far offshore and deep. Um, we don't have many lakes and there are some trees, but we need something that really uh, works on a longer time scale. And for that, we are studying how we can use uh, stalagmites, these cave mineral deposits, to do that. I've got a sample of it here that I'm holding up and uh, if you just w walked into a cave and looked at it, it would be sort of this mound of uh, this white mineral calcite that's forming from the drip water. We see the flat top here where the drip lands and spreads out and grows. And if we look at the sliced cross section through it that's been polished, 
we can see that there is a whole range of colors and translucentness um, and it varies as we go upward in time. So it's kind of like rings of a tree. Exactly, yeah, very much so resembles that. Yeah, except, you know, with a tree, this much growth might be 100 years or so. We have yet to date this sample, but based on similar samples in Texas, this may be, uh, I would guess, in the ballpark of about 20,000 years of time. And that's what? That's probably, what, a six-inch section? Yeah, it's probably six inches tall, and I would just guess 20,000 years in time, probably plus or minus. You could put a plus or minus 15,000 years on that. So big uncertainty. Uh, thank goodness we have naturally occurring radioactive isotopes in nature that get incorporated into this calcite. When this layer grows down here, say about 20,000 years ago, if it grew here, it would incorporate the naturally occurring uranium. It came from the soil, the rain infiltrates through the soil, that drop of water then makes it through the limestone above the cave, and then that drop of water enters the roof of the cave, and not only does it have uranium in it, it's got all kinds of elements, just about every element of the periodic table. So that water falls, hits, spreads out, and forms an incrementally thin layer of water. And in Texas, if a, if a stalagmite like this is growing 50 microns in a year, that's 0.05 millimeters. It's like nothing. In a year, that's pretty speedy for a Texas stalagmite. Uh, but it turns out that the, the rate at which they grow change. And the way we can tell all of this, how old they are, how fast they're growing, is to date different layers through here. And the way we date it is that uranium I was speaking about, that the water carries down here when the calcite mineral grows from the water, that 50 micron layer, it incorporates some uranium in it. That uranium has an isotope, 238 uranium, it's naturally radioactive, it decays, and it winds up producing a daughter product called thorium-230. It's another element, different isotope. That amount of uranium-238 relative to thorium-230 is sort of a clock. We measure the parent, how much daughter there is, and that gives us a discrete age. And so we can do that for a, determine these ages using an instrument called a mass spectrometer. We can determine those ages for a range of these layers. And then we could see that there's some parts in here where things were growing really fast and they slow down, they sped up, they sort of give us a clue as to how fast they were growing as a function of time. And that rate of growth, what do you think that rate of growth may reflect? Like if it's growing fast, say down here, do you think there was something different about what was going on? Quite a bit more water, I would assume. Or? Yeah, yeah. More, more water, rainfall. More water was dripping on it. And how does more water drip on it? Maybe more rainfall. All right. So in the simplest way of using these stalagmites is really as paleo rain gauges, they're called. Right now, our work has shown there's a number of other factors that make this complex. Uh, but that's kind of that's kind of the fun of this kind of research is trying to unravel all these complexities to get at what is the real information this is telling us about what was going on 20,000 years ago when a giant ice sheet came halfway down across North America. And certainly we saw some changes in how the atmosphere circulated as a result of that and how that Texas was actually a much rainier environment uh, than it is today. Not nearly as drought prone as it is today. It was cooler during this ice age and it was probably significantly wetter is what some of our preliminary results are showing in this region. How, how old is this type of, this study of, of these types of formations? 
in terms is and especially in terms of i guess climate in particular do you even do you know Could yeah. you speak to that yeah yeah sure so really the uh, probably the first studies were in the 1970s when these dating methods became available and the 1980s picked up a little bit i would say it was the the mid 90s early to mid 90s when when i got into the game it was sort of turning a corner because then interest in climate change started getting real and some of the ice core studies were coming out and that got people thinking uh, there are probably other ways aside from ice cores and deep sea sediments which are now well established as proxies people began looking for other proxies and at the time i was studying i was studying caves because i was really interested in groundwater modern groundwater evolution and streamwater evolution I remember I was in a cave in, uh, in the early 90s. I was in a cave in Barbados, and I was sampling a drip water as part of a study of the modern water system in the cave. We were, st- we were sampling cave streams and drip waters and whatnot. And I was being really careful in this cave because I was squatting to sample this drip water. I was being really careful uh, not to damage or touch any of the formations around me because the caves are very delicate environments. But I had been thinking for the better part of a year that understanding groundwater evolution would be really helped if we had a long-term record of groundwater, right? Because we could study groundwater today, and if we go out and we sample it, we sample it quarterly or seasonally, we could see what changes in seasons might do, and that's really important. That's come out of a lot of studies of these kinds of systems. But I thought if we had a longer-term record of groundwater, we can actually learn how long-term changes in climate may may affect aquifers like the Edwards Aquifer. And I remember sitting there collecting that water sample, being really careful not to, because I was squatting, I turned around, and there was a little stalagmite right behind me. And it kind of struck me. It's like, maybe that's a way we can understand groundwater by looking at these things. So, you know, there used to be a commercial. I think it was uh, this actor, John Hausman, who played this really tough lawyer in the movie, The, the Paper Chase. And I think it was his voice, uh, maybe, I think it was for an investment company. And I remember his quote was, good ideas don't bite you on the butt. And you have to go find them. For your, and literally, sure this, literally this idea <laughs> was just about to bite me on the butt. Uh, very interesting. Um, so you're, and you're studying these in, is inner space cavern and natural bridge caverns in our proximity here, that, or those areas where you're looking at this type of formation as well? Yeah, inner space caverns up in Georgetown and natural bridge caverns down in New Braunfels. Yeah, um, it's giving us the start of uh, some regional coverage because if you look at just one cave or one sample from one cave, it's hard to know without replicating it across a distance that that is a really accurate climate signal. It could be the vagaries of what's going on at one particular drip site as things change over time. So having this regional network of caves is really important to our studies. And yeah, uh, so Natural Bridge and Interspace Caverns are both commercial operations, and we're really indebted to the owners and operators of those caves to giving us access to the research. In return, we share our research results, and so the public also gets to know firsthand at the cave the kinds of results uh, that were were, uh, unearthing and we also yeah that was no pun intended (laughs) and uh another place that we study here in central texas is a cave called west cave 
which is if you know where Hamilton Pool is. Oh yeah. <clears throat> if you keep you stay on Hamilton Pool Road, go another several miles, you'll come upon West Cave Preserve, and that's a really neat cave. Very different kind of setting, very shallow um, setting as opposed to a deeper, bigger cave. This is more like on the sidewall of a canyon, and the volume of the cave is small. The openings of the cave is really big, and it turns out what that does is it makes the air outside circulate often and rapidly with the air inside. Whereas deeper caves, like Inner Space and Natural Bridge, are more sort of buffered against changes outside. Right. And so that could be both helpful and unhelpful, depending on the kind of scientific question you're trying to address. What's really neat about these shallow caves with big openings that exchange air all the time is that you're actually getting the temperature outside in the cave inside. Many caves, they stay near constant temperature, like in this region, much like uh, if you've gone swimming up Barton Springs. Oh, yeah. It's usually like 69 or 70 degrees Fahrenheit. doesn't change much. Um, same thing with a cave in this region. They're usually right around the same temperature. So, you know, in the summer, you go, oh, it's really hot out. Let's go inside the cave today. It's going to be nice and cool. In the winter, it's cold. Let's go in the cave. We'll warm up. The cave's actually not changing. The cave is about the same, but the air outside changes, right? Well... So because that cave is so well buffered against the outside changes, it's not showing us seasonal changes. But in these small near surface, small volume, high opening ratio caves, big openings, small volume like West Cave is, we see the seasonal changes. And so there's the potential that those seasonal changes will be recorded somehow in the stalactite. Tight stalagmites. Yeah, <laughs> Even you tripped I have, up. I have to say it to myself every time. <laughs> so some discoveries we've made recently in West Cave, and in another cave out in the uh, out in the far west Texas and New Mexico uh, in the Guadalupe Mountains, a similar small uh, small volume high opening uh, cave. We're seeing these seasonal changes like we can't see in these other bigger caves. So that's kind of a, a recent exciting development. So one thing that you mentioned in terms of, I guess, the, the, the geographic variability of climate is something that always strikes me as really fascinating because I've actually, I've had another professor here from the uh, Jenny Catania, oh, yeah. and she primarily studies glaciers and, and whatnot, but we were talking about sea level rise and just sort of how in uneven that is distributed and so you know different there's different processes that in one particular location the sea may levels may rise significantly whereas another so area it may not rise at all Mm -hmm. and there's just that that variability while you know it 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 makes sense from a logical perspective it's not necessarily always so intuitive what you're saying about regional changes is yeah it's it's really fascinating i think and important too getting back to uh Planet Texas 2050, if you sort of look at it in your mind's eye, think of what the U.S. looks like from, from space, either if, because you've been in the space shuttle or because you've seen some really nice satellite images, right? You think about it, the, the sort of eastern half of the United States is kind of green and the western half is kind of brown. And that's because there's a, a big changeover from a very humid southeast U.S. to very arid southwest U.S., and if you consider where that where that boundary is, it's not like a really sharp boundary. It's a transitional boundary. It's spread out. But if you look at the Earth from space, it looks like it's really sharp. 
And it goes right through, um, first proposed by John Wesley Powell, a uh, explorer of the American West, uh, professor of geoscience at Illinois Wesleyan University, a soldier in the Civil War, really remarkable guy. And just from horseback and, and rafts, he was able to sort of put together that image. He had no satellite, no space shuttle, pretty sure back in the 1800s, when he basically said to Congress and whoever would listen, you know what, there's this line of 100 degrees west longitude. And to the west of that, we really shouldn't be developing the land because there's not enough water to support it. To the east of that is where we should stick. Uh, he really wasn't listened to as much <laughs> as he could have been. As we know, there's major cities all over the west and particularly the southwest, southwest U.S. Yeah. And it's only by, you know, having to take water and uh, take it and divert that water that was naturally going to go down, the, say, the Colorado River, the one that flows to the to the to the west coast of the U.S., not our Colorado River here in Texas. That has been basically a lot of that flow has been diverted. And as a result, there are some cities that exist that couldn't exist otherwise, but they're really constantly sort of stressed for water. So if you look at that boundary of 100, 100 degrees west longitude, you know, cities like uh, San Antonio, the Rio Grande Valley, San Marcos, the fastest growing city in the country, Austin, you know, we're all around 97, 98 degrees west longitude. So the idea is that these future projected droughts that that dry line, if you will, is going to shift to the east. And so that's a case where knowing regional changes in climate are really important because think of these, this string of cities from the Rio Grande Valley, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, they're kind of all on a line like this. Sorry, you can't see listeners. <laughs> and parallel, almost sub-parallel to that is the 100 degree west uh, longitude line. And that's projected to shift to the east. And if it does, there are these cities, not only the big cities in Texas, but those are the cities, as we talked about at the top of your podcast, those are the cities where the doubling of population is projected to go into, as well as Houston and, and others. So that's one of the real synergistic challenges we face, is understanding how that will happen. And just what you talked about, regional changes in climate, and trying to understand those and project those through modeling is going to be really important as we move forward. Certainly, I think San Antonio is already experiencing, you know, stresses in terms of water supply. And I think something like a pretty significant amount of their natural or their water supply comes from wells. Right. Uh, almost all of it. Nearly 100% of their water comes from underground water. They're the largest city in North America that's essentially reliant on underground water or groundwater for their water resources. That is, um, that's particularly challenging. Uh, most, most municipalities uh, would be doing well to have a diversity of resources, surface water and groundwater. Austin is mostly surface water, right? The Colorado River is providing water to, to our homes after we treat it. But I think there's somewhere on the order of about 40,000 uh, homes that have wells down into the Edwards or Trinity aquifers that are getting their water from, from there. So a town like San Antonio has to try to diversify, has to try to find other sources of water. Those challenges, do you pipe them in? Has to find other potential solutions. Can you come up with a technological solution? Can you desalinate brackish groundwater, right? Slightly salty groundwater. Can you take that out of wells, treat it, and make it 
dilute enough so that it's drinkable. Um, there are other technological solutions. One's called aquifer storage and recovery. So when you have a rain event, can you divert a lot of that rain that otherwise would run off the landscape? Can you divert it into what we would call our recharge feature of an aquifer, right? An opening at the surface, that water can go down, join the water table, and it would recharge the aquifer and raise its water level. And that's aquifer storage. You divert the recharge, fill up the aquifer, fill it up more than it's filled already, and basically store that water until it's needed during drier times. And that would be the recovery part. Then you pump it back out. So San Antonio is sort of at the at the forefront of dealing with um, looking at a future, very little water, a future where it continues to grow. I know every time I go to San Antonio, it's like I can't believe all these new all these new developments, new places. It's kind of like Austin. If I'm away for a while, go away for a few weeks and come <laughs> right. back. Yeah, no kidding. It's like, where did that? It's a whole new downtown. Where, yeah, where did that come from? <laughs> it's remarkable how fast we're growing. Um, and I think it really behooves us to, you know, in addition to marveling at it, to, to be thinking really carefully about, about planning for our future. There's things we could be doing now that if we take action now, it's things will be uh, much easier to deal with in the future as opposed to let's just wait till it's uh, till it's a crisis and then if we choose to deal with it then not necessarily as easy a solution available uh, it's what I call sort of a, our 11th hour mentality oh, right. as, as a society exactly right let's just wait till it's just so bad we actually have to act as opposed to you know what will it cost now if we act how much would it take to do this solution X Y or Z versus how much will it cost if we don't do anything, business as usual, well, let's wait till it's really bad. Then how much will it cost? And a, a really good resource, if anyone's interested, is uh, it's called the Stern Report, S-T-E-R-N. Nicholas Stern is an economist in the UK that led a uh, led uh, putting together this really comprehensive report in terms of global impacts of climate change from an economic point of view. How much will it cost if we act now to try to mitigate against the changes that are to come and adapt to them versus how much will it cost if we wait until things are really bad and then we act. And his analysis, the thing, it's a really thick one. I didn't read the whole thing, <laughs> but the part that I really took away from it is almost at every turn, uh, acting now costs significantly less than waiting and acting later. Certainly. And as you discussed at the opening of the podcast, it feels like there's a perfect storm of different factors that are <laughs> going to coalesce into just an outright unmitigated disaster if we don't begin to sort of implement some type of long-term planning, you know, particularly in relation to groundwater supplies, energy, things of that nature. Absolutely. Very scary for, for the state. Uh, yeah, the state. Uh, I think the state would be well advised to begin assessing this and planning now. And hopefully projects like Planet Texas 2050 will produce results that will make people even more aware of the very significant challenges that we face. Not only are they significant challenges, they're really interdisciplinary, they're really synergistic, and they're complicated. And it's going to require some really, um, some really careful and hard research to, to lay all of that out. And it's also going to take not just the research, but enacting policies 
that will lead to solutions. And the sooner we get started on it, uh, the better. I think that's a great thought to close us out on. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Dr. Banner. I really appreciate it. This is fantastic. My pleasure. My pleasure, Cooper. Thanks for having me. We are going to sign off, Schizoid fans. We'll be back next week. Welcome.